Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. I'm Dan Sneed from the School of Journalism and Mass Communication, and we're joined this month by Dr. Emily K. Brunson, an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology. Dr. Brunson is an applied anthropologist specializing in medical anthropology, and she's joining us to discuss the COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Brunson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So let's start here. What exactly is medical anthropology and how did you come to this? So medical anthropology in general is the study of health in societies. It considers how diseases are interpreted. Different different societies see different things, physical, mental, or behavioral characteristics being abnormal. Um, and those are not necessarily the same that we see in other societies. And, and then it looks into issues of health and healing and, and how diseases are then treated. So my research with medical anthropology has largely been based in the U.S. And I, I specifically study vaccination. And so what makes me different than someone in public health who's studying this, for example, is I'm, I'm really trying to think and understand about what are the, the social circumstances that are, are producing outcomes that we see. So it's a much more holistic, broader picture of what that is than you'd, you'd get from a different discipline. So here we are, okay, right, a year on basically since COVID began to alter our life dramatically here in the United States. As we know, more than 500,000 Americans dead, millions more infected. And I think this kind of gets to a basic understanding before we launch into vaccine, but Throughout it all, right, there have been all sorts of debates and memes and sometimes literally physical fights over mask wearing, social distancing. We've had these quack cures come out of left field, the denigration of doctors and scientists. As somebody who studies the social end of health, when you look at past pandemics, have we seen this kind of action happen? And if so, why do people do this? Why do people kind of fight against the science or the health aspect of what's happening? So, yeah, I mean, we've seen this before in various iterations of this, pretty much with every pandemic situation that has ever happened in human history. So going back to the plague, for example, when that first started um, in Europe in 1347, there was a lot of confusion about what this was and what caused it and some very different camps that felt different ways about it. And so they, people were arguing and trying to figure out, you know, what is the best way to address this health issue? We're in a, a different moment, obviously, in our history because we do have science. We have the ability to understand microbes, what they are, what they're doing to a, a much greater degree than people in medieval Europe. But we, we still see the, the same types of these cultural phenomenon that you were talking about. So some people are saying, you know, COVID isn't even real. Or why are we worried about this? Because it's not really affecting people. And you have other people saying, you know, we need to shut everything down. Let's stop. And, and you see everything in the middle. And so and then it, it comes down to some, some interesting things that are happening in the U.S. that also relate to past events that the U.S. for a very long time culturally has had this ethos of you know, independence and individualism. You know, you need to do what's best for yourself. You need to do what's best for your family. And, and so that, that has come across in, in past events, and we're seeing this too with COVID-19, where, you know, there is this hesitation to, for example, wear masks. 
and and this this idea that you know that this is infringing on individual liberty which is not the circumstance that's happening in other countries today so so all of our our past and and our culture that we have currently is is impacting the way this is working out for us the vaccine itself right that's why we're here and that's very interesting that that perspective that you just brought i think that helps explain a lot of what we've seen in a different light but the vaccine that's that's why we're here to talk about this so in texas about 11% of the population has had one dose of the vaccine almost 5% has had two nationally the percentages of the population that have had one and two are a little bit higher. You're currently working with researchers from Johns Hopkins on policy outreach, I understand, with regard to the vaccine. What can you tell us so far about what you've seen about what's working in terms of outreach and maybe what's not at this point? There there are two things that that relate to vaccination in general and that we're really seeing attention here with with COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and it's it's the idea that it goes back to vaccines themselves. We often talk about outcomes, and especially in, in the U.S. and other developed countries, make the assumption that that's about choice. And, and to some extent it is. There are people who are choosing to accept the COVID-19 vaccine, and there are people who are not. There is, however, also an issue of access that can play into this, that, you know, you can have people who who cannot access it, and sometimes it's that they're they're working for example, jobs where they can never make it to a clinic because the, the hours don't match. It could be that they don't have transportation. And in Texas, we don't have a good public transportation system. So, you know, telling somebody that lives in rural Travis um, or Hayes County that they need to go to Austin to get a vaccine isn't practical. Or you can end up with situations that are, are happening in the southern end of the state where you have people who are potentially even citizens themselves. They might have family members who are not, or they, they might not be citizens, but in order to get to a vaccination site, they have to cross a border check, which they're unwilling to do because that doesn't feel safe. And so, so all of these issues are, are creating the situation that we're in. And what's happening and, and what we're seeing in terms of uptake is something between this idea of choice and access. Where, where for some people, they, there's some definite crossover there as well. So the, the whole idea of what's going on in Texas is, and, and really across the world is, is more complicated than what people initially think. And I know speaking, you know, my family's from Massachusetts and up there, it, it's been a slog getting it rolled out. And they've had these mass vaccination sites at stadiums, Fenway Park, Gillette Stadium, but those are located in one portion of the state. My 94-year-old grandmother who doesn't drive, her driving 45 minutes into the city, pretty difficult, probably not going to happen. So she's got to wait for something locally so that I completely understand that. In terms of eligibility, right, for the vaccine, I'm way down the list. I'm under 40, no pre-existing conditions, don't have immediate family with any of those conditions. But I keep looking forward to the day that my name is called, right? And when that happens, I'll be first in line, sleeve rolled up, ready to go. For others, though, not so much. And I know that this is something worth discussing. We can get back to what you just talked about as well. What is this idea of vaccine hesitancy? So the way that WHO defines hesitancy is it's when there's a delay in acceptance or a refusal of of vaccination entirely, despite the vaccines being available. It really does encompass um, quite 
a large range of people. There, there are people who are truly you know, anti-vaccination and, and that's not being hesitant. There are also a, a large number of people um, in the US and in Texas who accept vaccines without, without questioning them. And, and that's not hesitant either. But you, you have a bunch of people in the middle that essentially they have questions and those questions can cause them to delay acceptance or to, to end up refusing vaccines. The majority of the population is by far either just accepting or they're hesitant. And I want to make that very clear. But people have different concerns in, with vaccinations generally and, and with the COVID-19 vaccine in particular. One of them, and, and we saw this um, with H1N1 vaccination 10 years ago, is, has to do with a set of new vaccines that were developed quickly. And, and so there, there have been some concerns. And like I said, 10 years ago, the same concerns existed around the H1N1 vaccine is, is the vaccine safe? So that's one of the, the things that's going on. We see, we see hesitancy popping up for other reasons. And, and they do tend to be local. So, so every individual, you're going to get a lot of you know, individual explanations, but they, they do tend to cluster locally. So you're, you would often have the same type of concerns as your friends and your neighbors. And why is that? Uh, people talk to one another. So would be the, the big reason that mm. you know, you're, you're sharing information, you're sharing concerns, and, and that, that, that itself is contagious. And, and so you do tend to get clustering of hesitancy. Does that kind of, that talking, that who you're around or who you live by you know, when you're talking about access and you're talking about this idea of hesitancy in some cases, that whole idea of who you're around, that matters, right? I mean, that is that one of the main drivers that we're looking at in terms of people who are getting vaccine or, or aren't hesitant to get it? Well, absolutely. An interesting thing that's happening in this particular moment, because we're also social distancing, is that social media use across the board for most people has went up quite a bit that you know where you might have had block parties or you know gone over to a neighbor's house for dinner or you know spent a weekend with your friends camping or something that you're not doing that in the same way but now you're you know on Instagram with one another you're on Facebook with one another you're catching up that way and so and as you're on those social media sites you're being exposed to other messages through social media as well that are not necessarily coming just from your friends that you're on there to stay in touch with. And so that is also something. So it's not, in, in this particular instance, it's not just a geographically focused, who are you with, but it's, it's really, who are you with mm -hmm. real large, you know, even, even virtually. And so I do know that there is some polling data on this idea of hesitancy. Could you, could you discuss that a little bit in terms of what we're seeing and what we're learning? Yeah. So national polls, of, of COVID-19 vaccinations saying, you know, are you willing to take it right now? Like Dan, you were saying earlier, you wanna be first in line when you can be. Are you willing to get it, but you wanna wait and see? Are you willing to do it possibly, you know, or if you're told you have to or, or not at all? There, there are trends that have existed across the surveys now for and across these national polls for quite a while. It, it seems that women tend to be more hesitant about COVID-19 vaccination. We're also seeing some, some more hesitancy in rural areas compared to urban areas. And we're seeing hesitancy by political affiliation with conservatives and those who, who lean and, and consider themselves to be strong conservatives are, are more hesitant. 
we're also seeing, and, and one of the, the biggest trends is actually by race and ethnicity. So hesitancy is strongest in black and Hispanic populations, despite the fact that these populations are some of the most heavily hit by COVID in terms of number of cases and the percentage of deaths that have occurred. So to that point, with as you're talking about race and ethnicity and the effect that COVID has had, do we know why? Why that hesitancy exists? There, there's ongoing research, and I'm, I'm actually leading a national project that's looking into this, but there, there do seem to be a few things going on. One of them is that this is very much an access issue for some of these populations, and that, that sometimes when people don't have access to vaccines, or, or to any type of medical technology, they can end up talking about it as if they don't want it. Mm. And, and so that, that can be part of what's, what we're seeing there. The other part is, is that, and this is especially true for Black communities, is that there is a longstanding lack of trust in both public health and the government. These are instances where Black bodies have been experimented on in the past, in, including yes. but definitely not limited to Tuskegee. Mm -hmm. But you know, beyond that, Black individuals in the U.S. also are having worse health outcomes when they, when they see healthcare providers. They're more likely to be treated poorly in healthcare settings. They are more likely to have not had access to healthcare. And, and you have communities where for, for decades now, they've been asking for help to address issues, for example, with cancer or diabetes and have effectively been ignored. And so to now have public health and, and government officials and others who are you know, especially when they're white, to come in and, and parachute into these communities and say, there's a big issue here, we need to address it. There's some pushback against that. And then when you put that into the, the social fabric of what's happened in the last year around the murder of George Floyd and, and all of those, the protests that came after that, I mean, you're really looking at a situation that is tenuous, that is definitely touchy. And people's thoughts and emotions are, are raw and justifiably so. But so, and then we're throwing in COVID-19 vaccination on top of all of this. So it's tricky. And it, it's a tough and involved cell that isn't about the technology and it isn't about science. It's about something else. Something much larger, which I suppose, does this now provide, I, I guess, to a point, a larger opening? to address these systemic issues that, that we've seen in, in medicine, in economics, whatnot, in order that this may be the light that shines that and gets that done? Or does this provide that kind of opening to address that history in a different kind of way? So, and that's really the, the take that the coalition that I'm working with, Communivax, is, is trying to do and, and to make that, you know, this is a tragedy. And, and we can't overlook that. But at the same time, it's also an opportunity to, to use this as a mechanism to produce change. So that instead of you know, having this be something where we're, for example, just trying to push COVID-19 vaccines in Black or Hispanic or other communities of color, that we can start to work with those communities to create lasting changes so that they can build these connections with government, with public health amongst themselves to be able to push through not just COVID-19 vaccination, but you know, those long-standing issues with diabetes, with cancer, they can start to use this to address issues of equality more generally, you know, and, and other issues that are important to them. So it, it really is the, the whole phrase, don't waste a good crisis, is exactly how we, we see this working, that this is very much an opportunity that can be a game-changing moment. 
And could you speak a little bit more about that particular research, that group that you're working with? What exactly, where are you doing this? How is this going on? What's the end goal, time frame, all that stuff? The, the project is called Communivax. Um, it involves a, a set of researchers from across the country that are, are coming together to specifically address this issue of equity. So we have experts in vaccinology and public health across the social science disciplines, people who have been involved doing participatory action research, community engagement, and, and leading community organizations. We have local teams in six areas across the U.S., going from California in the West to Alabama in the South to Maryland in the East. And they're working um, on local levels with Black and Hispanic communities to, to both perform research to understand what are people's hopes and fears in regard to COVID-19 vaccination, and then to begin developing those community engagement activities to, to once again, with the goal of producing lasting change. So it's, it's a huge project, but it's, it's an exciting one. And we're, we're hoping, we just released a report a few weeks ago, but we're hoping to release additional guidance um, that would exist at a national level for increasing equity in, among Black and Hispanic and other communities of color. And, and that should be coming out in the next two months or so. It sounds like a fascinating project and one that has much been needed for quite a long time. And not to be glib, but to build off that, as somebody who has studied this, you've built your career on this. For you personally to be involved in this and to be active and alive at this time, that must be something that you, you know, not enjoy because none of us enjoy a pandemic clearly in what's happening, but it must be something that really, truly you feel like, boy, I'm at the right place, the right time to do this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been, my entire career has been around, well, vaccination, but then healthcare access and decision-making, communication during crisis situations. So I've been talking for more than 10 years at this point about what we needed to do if we had a moment like this. And it feels surreal to actually be in that moment. And, and so it's, it's professionally been exhilarating in some ways, but at the same time, I would happily give all that up if we could be out of the situation. Of right? course. Yeah, of course. It's it's that idea of what you've been preparing for your whole life. And now he, here it is, it's here and you get to test it and put it to a, a real world use in that sense. I understand too, that you're, you're working with undergraduates here at Texas State on vaccine um, interest or, or vaccine concerns or whatnot. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I've been doing... Um, I did some research with Texas State undergraduates in the fall, and, and we're continuing with a different piece of that this spring. With COVID-19 vaccination, even the university is interested in, in you know, what's going to happen here with our students. How can we get back to something that looks more normal in terms of in-person classes, in terms of you know, football games and other social activities the students very much want to get back to? So I, I did some survey research in the fall in relation to that. Most of our students are willing to get vaccinated. Some of them do want to wait and see what will happen to other people who get vaccinated. But um, Which is only natural though, right? That's a normal kind of thing that you might expect to see, right? It's fair. Yeah, it's fair. The same trends that exist in the national polling existed in our data too. So once again, so women, Republicans, Minority students, especially Blacks, were less likely to want to be vaccinated. But the one thing that I, I really 
liked and that I think speaks well to our students is that a number of them and, and over 90% were saying that they, they were willing to do things that didn't necessarily benefit themselves, like wearing masks and, and potentially even taking a vaccine that even if they have concerns, if it would benefit others. But they are thinking about their peers, their professors, the broader San Marcos community, and they're, they're willing to do what's needed to make life better for everyone. And I think that sp speaks very well to our students here. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, I've been face to, well, face to face as close as you can be in the fall and this semester. And I've been just so impressed with how everybody has been staff, faculty, students with masks, respect to social distancing very concerned about that coming into last fall and those concerns quickly went away in the classroom. The students have done a great job and they're really respectful of their peers and, you know, taking that moment back and saying, hey, I have a question. Can I come up and ask you this, right? Like everybody's been very good about that. So you're right. It speaks very well to our students. So final question with Dr. Emily Brunson. We've gone through all this. We're now at the point the vaccine is rolling out. What is next? What's the next step here? So very quickly, it is highly likely that we're going to have more vaccines approved. And, and that's really going to open up vaccination for more people. So Dan, you will, you will get your chance to stand in line and get your vaccine. I hope. Possibly, <laughs> possibly you know, late this spring, early in the summer. And then the next phase, once we get through most of the adult vaccination, will be getting children vaccinated, if that is the direction that we end up going. Clinical trials are, are undergoing now with age groups that are they're continually going down in age to test the vaccine, but, but that will likely um, be coming up potentially as early in the fall, although that may not start until next year. So is, is vaccination a solution to the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes, it is definitely at this point our best way out of the situation that we're in, that we all very much want to be out of. Is it going to solve things tomorrow? No. This is going to be an ongoing issue for the next, you know, at least nine months. But we just need to be patient with this and give this time to play out. Dr. Emily K. Brunson, thank you so much for joining us. Very interesting talk. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for joining us on this month's episode of Big Ideas. We hope you'll join us next month. Until then, stay well, stay healthy, and stay informed. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke, with technical assistance provided by Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz.